chuckled along with him, sufficiently beard up even at that time of the afternoon to laugh at almost anything, tugged along by the promise of another drink once the joke was done, because Grandad, despite his casual treachery and deceit, could always be relied upon to stand his round. So, there was an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman at Buckingham Palace, lined up before the Queen gawping at the finery of the place like a trio of slack-jawed yokels on a day-trip. The Queen has a commission for them, a kind of favour, and she asks if there is anything they wouldn't do for her. It's the Englishman who steps forward first. Nothing, he says. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my Queen. Nor I, says the Irishman. Nor I, says the Scotsman. To which the Queen replies, Would you kill for me? Would you maim and hack and slit for me? The witnesses agreed that it was at this moment that my granddad's mood changed completely. It was as though all the good humour had been vacuum pumped from the room. He winced. A shadow passed across his face. Everyone swears blind that this is what he said next, his voice quaking with emotion. This is not a joke. This is a secret. Another wince, or rather an expression which began as a wince before growing into a spasm and was well on its way to becoming a convulsion when he pitched forward on his stool and sprawled face down in the sticky carpet. His companions gaped blearily at him. One or two even wondered whether this might not be part of the fun, and were starting to wish that he'd hurry up, get back to his feet, and order another brace of drinks, when it became apparent that this was more than play-acting. A murmur of disquiet. A small but noticeable sobering up. A stranger stepped forward from the back of the pub where he had been sitting, silent and unobserved, nursing a lemonade with a couple of similarly unobtrusive friends. In a flat, prim voice, he told them that he was a doctor, and asked, politely, but with the air of someone used to an attentive audience, whether he might be of some assistance. He wore a dark, old-fashioned suit, a skinny tie, and a grubby white shirt with peculiarly high collars, and he looked completely out of place in that pub absurdly, embarrassingly incongruous. No sooner had he appeared than one of his companions, dressed so far as anyone could tell in exactly the same quaint way, abandoned his lemonade and trotted up beside him. Without the slightest trace of emotion, he announced that he too was a doctor, and wondered aloud whether he could help to alleviate the situation. With the woozy logic of a recurring dream, the third stranger, identically attired, strolled up to the bar to casually announce that he'd trained at Bart's, and that his services were unequivocally at their disposal. Everyone shuffled back, too befuddled to do much else, as the strangers knelt beside Grandad like the Magi turned up by mistake at an old folks' home. The first of them rolled him onto his back and reached for his wrist, groping for a pulse with forefinger and thumb. After a few seconds, he announced that Grandad still lived. 
It was only then that any chink of emotion entered his voice. The entourage told me later that it sounded like disappointment. As the second man speculated about a stroke, a heart attack, an embolism, the last of the strangers took a handkerchief from the top pocket of his jacket, wiped his brow, and suggested that someone call a bloody ambulance. When Mum told me this story, I stopped her here, my heart cartwheeling in hope. You told me he was dead! I could hear the sneer in her voice. Well, she said, as good as. There's something more you ought to know. Each of those men, each of those so-called doctors, spoke with a different regional accent, each so pronounced and distinct as to be immediately recognisable. Those men were walking...